and welcome to 90% Hits, a podcast about the number one singles in Australia throughout the 90s. My name is Danny Yao, and with me as usual is Tim Coyle. One time. <laughs> Casey Atkins. Hello, everyone. And down the line from the Gold Coast, Tim Byron. Two times. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, that's a reference to a song that we will be talking about later tonight on this podcast where we talk about the number one singles throughout the 90s in Australia. Uh, we are currently up to 1996. 96. It was a very good year. And we might as well get strong straight into it, I think. This song was number one for... Five weeks. Five weeks. Five, five, years. Years. five years. No, that was cool. Yeah, that was cool. Yeah. This was five weeks from the 13th of April, uh, 1996. And this is OMC with How Bizarre. Brother Bellas in the back, sweet singers in the front. Cruising down the freeway in the hot, hot sun Suddenly red blue lights flash us from behind Loud voice booming, please step out onto the line Belly bridge words of comfort, Cena just hides her eyes Policeman taps the shades, is that a Chevy 69? How bizarre How bizarre, how bizarre Destination unknown as we're pulling for some gas A freshly placed poster reveals a smile from the back Elephants and acrobats, lion snakes monkey Bella speaks righteous, sister Cena says funky How bizarre How bizarre, how bizarre Number one for five weeks in 1996. Tim Coyle, why don't we start with you? (laughs) 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 Yeah, I mean, how bizarre. Um, Just on a a personal note, my um, my wife's boss was OMC's manager. No fucking way. <laughs> so o- <laughs> OMC bought him his first house. <laughs> um, and big house? It's, 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 it is a very big house. So, yeah. Um, did, you, did you remember this song from back in the day? Yeah. Well, so I think at the time I really fucking hated this song. Um, the guy's voice is so annoying and it's so amateurish and terrible. And the, the faux Mexicana stuff just irritated me terribly and it still does um yeah it's it's a novelty song effectively and it's a novelty song on the basis of a lot of that that mexicana stuff and i guess the the basis of it is oh shit happens but yeah he's the guy's just got no talent (laughs) um and yeah as i said he's he's a terrible singer and he doesn't know whether he's singing or rapping in this. He can't really make up his mind. And, yeah, it's just a bit of a grand old mess and, and not a fun one like some of the other songs we'll be talking about. <laughs> so, yeah, not a big fan of this at all. Casey Atkins, what about you? 
Yeah, I, I don't. I don't think I hated it. Um, I, I certainly just. Um, I didn't appreciate it so much, but just kind of let it pass for for what it was being a novelty song. I'm amazed that it was on the charts for or number one for five weeks. Like that is ridiculous. Um, but yeah, I don't. I don't think I had any particular hate for it. I think I was, you know, just listening to what I was listening to. This certainly wasn't that. Um, but this was one of those things that was there in the background. I was amazed this week at just how bad it is. Like, um, just flabbergasted at just how bad it is in pretty much every way, <laughs> with the small exception of the. Um, there's a, a backing vocal harmony that's really, really nicely, tightly arranged. Apart from that, um, oh, it, it's, it's dreadful. <laughs> Tim Byron. It's interesting recently, like once we got to sort of 95 or 96, I'm sort of 13 or 14, where you guys are sort of 15, like it's that little bit older. And so for me, this is just like, yeah, this is fun. This is great. And like we've had this for a few songs in the last couple of podcasts, and this is another one. So for me, um, listening to it at the time, I don't think I really loved the song at the time, but it was pleasant enough to have in the background and I, I didn't object to it or anything. Um it was all right. It wasn't terrible. It was just kind of all right. And listening to it now, I don't know. Like, I, I don't, I think Tim Coyle is miss. I don't, I was surprised to hear Tim Coyle talk about Mexicana. To me, it's more um, like trying to be that kind of Polynesian sort of Hawaiian kind of feel. And the, there is the, the trumpet, which sort of has a bit of a sort of mariachi kind of thing, but it's just a bit of everything. And to me, yeah, it's listening to it now as an adult, I don't think my opinions really changed that much. I haven't, I don't sort of feel that it's that terrible. It's just kind of a song from 96 that was a novelty song. Um, there's worse novelty songs to come in 1996 alone. Hmm. Um, I, well, I guess to me, I find it interesting what you were saying, that um, you thought it, there was nothing good about it. I actually, I think I just came at the song from a reverse angle. Like I just remember the song being so terrible mm. that I listened to it this week and I went, oh, there were nice bits. Right. Like, the bit where, like, he mixes up, the trumpet starts going in the background and going, oh, well, you know, I can, this nothing band actually, I'm sure the rest of the album tracks are terrible, but I can see why this one had a really, really nice hook, that guitar line's really nice, and even though you can tell that he's a bad singer, it just works just enough for this song. Like, he's monotonic. But he's not a singer, is he? No. No. <laughs> and he looks like a douche in the film, clearly. Oh, really so much. Um, but... There's enough in there for me to go, yeah, that it makes that hook work. So I think it's it's one of those things that we've spoken about before, just how much of the basis for this song selling in the way it did was based in the attitude rather than the performance, because I see so little in that performance, particularly <laughs> a vocal performance, that anyone could say, hey, that's that's good singing or good rapping or no, anything like that. I don't think anyone's saying that. It was just the attitude he was carrying it off with and now it rocked would rub someone like me up the wrong way, but other people would buy it. So, I think it's less than yeah. that. I think it's just... It's just catchy. Yeah, it's just catchy. It's just that, how bizarre. Do, 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 do. There's so many hooks. There's yeah. the how bizarre. Ooh, baby, you're driving me crazy. That's catchy as well. There's the every time I look around. Yeah, okay. Well, I mean, that's that's really all I have to say about this song. It wasn't really a big song for me, but do we all know what OMC stands yeah, for? Yes, the Otago Millionaires Club. Yeah, so they're New Zealand band as well, which I didn't... Really? Yeah, I, think I, knew, I knew that. Yeah. I didn't quite click with me. I knew they were a New Zealand band because I remember there was a parody of this 
um, that was on Triple M in Sydney at the time that someone did where it was called Stole My Car. Stole My Car, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And um, I don't know who did that, but um, they, they made it very obvious they were Kiwis. They were like Maoris and they were just kind of stealing stuff and it was probably quite racist, come to think of it. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so come I was aware they were Kiwis. Well, you know, when you're 14, you're not yeah. thinking about that kind of stuff and it's, it's like, oh, yeah, that's a funny song because it's Stole My Car instead of How Bizarre. Yeah. It's, it's the the rhythm of it but yeah um the thing with this song that's me is the stuff he's talking about like you know like getting pulled over by the police and going to a circus isn't actually that bizarre it's not bizarre when you're this guy (laughs) (laughs) given the given the way he behaves and his attitude in the video clip i'm not surprised cops were pulling him over all the time (laughs) yeah i know i was trying to figure out whether the how bizarre in that case was that the cop pulled him over and he's expecting to get you know, like ticket or something like that. And the bizarre thing was the cop was just like, mm, that's a nice car. Was yeah. that meant to be the bizarre thing? Yeah. Because the lyrics don't really make sense in a lot, in a lot of ways. Like it, really? it, it almost you reminds, <laughs> it also, it almost reminds me of like, um, Ode to Billy Joe by Bobby Gentry in that kind of thing where it's sort of telling a story, but it's not telling the whole story. And so you don't really know what's going on. It's that kind of almost that old weird America thing that Graham Marcus is talking about. No, um, yeah. you're giving a bit too much credit. <laughs> if you're going to give it a literary reference or a, or a reference outside of it, it's like a Monty Python sketch where they actually didn't have a punchline and when they just got to a part of the story where they didn't know how to finish, you just went, how bizarre. Well, that, yeah, that's, 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 it's the police officer at the end of the Holy Grail. Just yeah, exactly. That's it. <laughs> we, got nothing, we, got nothing, we got nothing left to say. Yeah. You've done enough, sonny. Yeah. Well, you know what? You know what? If anybody out there wants to know the rest, hey, buy the rights. <laughs> <laughs> Our second song of tonight is number one, was number one for four weeks all up. We took a week off in between for our third song tonight, which we'll get to. Uh, but this this, number, this song got to number one on the 18th of May, 1996. And this is George Michael with Fast Life. George Michael, number one for four weeks in 1996. Tim Byron, why don't we start with you? Are you looking for fast love in your life? (laughs) 
Well, these days, if you do want fast love in the way that George Michael had it, you can just download Grinder. <laughs> <laughs> and you do live on the Gold Coast for anyone sort of, you know. Mm. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I remember like at the time thinking that this song was so slick. It was like super slick. Like it had that video clip that was like really high tech. Like, you know, he, he had the sort of button to change the person who was dancing in front of him in the video clip. Yeah. That wasn't you know, that real was super technology high- in any way. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not one of <laughs> When you're George Michael, you have access to this kind of stuff. <laughs> Some guy like you down in the basement making this stuff. But yeah, like for, for kind of dance pop kind of stuff, it, it's super slick. And that's the thing, like I was I was I remember thinking then, like this is sort of slick stuff. And you, you listen to this and you compare it to like, I don't know, Be My Lover by LaBouche or like the real McCoy, like stuff of the same time period. It's it's much sort of more sophisticated and like it's got sort of things like sort of horn parts and kind of the more funkier rhythms and things like that that you wouldn't have heard in a lot of the dance pop of the time and so like it like I listened to it and it doesn't actually really sound like 96 to me it sounds more like 98 or 99 like when you get to stuff like Madison Avenue and Stardust and things like that yeah fair enough so like it so I think it's it's probably pretty influential as far as things go but like yeah listening to it this week again sort of like Jesus to a child like there's a, there's a song in there, but the arrangement doesn't do anything for the song. Like, it's just kind of like, it's there, but like, you know, when he sings Looking for Fast Love, you know, it's not that much of a hook. There's not that much, like, there's hooks there, but they're sort of down in the mix. And it, it's not, he, he, it's like the, it's too long as well. Like, it's about five minutes long when it should be about three minutes long. And it, yeah, it suffers from George Michael in 1996 syndrome, I guess. Yeah. Tim the, it's like the greatest ode to the glory hole that was ever written. <laughs> <laughs> Is it though? <laughs> I, I actually, I, I didn't mind it at the time. I think it had a little something about it. A lot of what Tim Byron says that it's super slick and compared to Jesus to a child, it's, um, it's got a little something to it. There's a bit of a snap. There's a bit of a groove. Um, there's a bit of dynamism about it. It, it still goes on for too long. Um, and that's kind of the thing, a, so- a song about dogging um, that becomes quite boring very quickly. You, you wouldn't have thought it, but it does. Um, listening to it this week, I, I still think it's it's pretty decent, but as I said, it's kind of it's decent for about three minutes, and then it just kind yeah. of peters out because it's doing the same thing yeah. over and over. It, it needed a more interesting middle eight, or it just had to do something to vary things a little, I think. So, yeah, a bit of a return to form, but not an emphatic one. Casey Atkins. See, he, he'd well lost me by this point, and this did nothing, absolutely nothing to, to bring me back, even after, even though it's more upbeat and whatever than Jesus to a Child, but it's just music in a style that I just did not like in 1996, yeah. you know? Um, and, and so it, it really just flew over my radar. I do remember the clip quite well with that. I think that image of the, the remote control changing the women in front of you, like it's kind of, it's quite striking. And that's actually a very interesting little concept for that video. But um, I, um, like what the other guys have said, I, I completely agree with. It's just, 
there's no real hook there. Like, I just can't find a hook. Like, I, as much as I don't necessarily like that, I mean, I certainly don't like that 90s dance music, at least you know where the hook is, and I just can't find it in this at all. And unlike a lot of the other George Michael songs that you can say, well, at least he sings the fuck out of it, it kind of could be anyone, you know. Yeah. It, 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 it doesn't yeah. go to enough places. No, it doesn't. It Vocal, doesn't show vocally, that it can that it can show off. It's yeah. just it's a very simple vocal for him to do. Yeah. It's not within the song to bring that out. So look, this is the last time we're going to get to talk about George Michael, really. I think, right? And. I, I don't feel um, sort of disappointed by that at all. <laughs> but mm. I guess the, the question I want to ask is, do you guys know the song Outside? Mm. Basically, how, as, as a George Michael fan, how I feel about this song is that a year later he rewrote it as Outside, <laughs> which is 500 times better. Right. So compared to Jesus to a Child, this song is right of the Valkyries, right? This song is pretty <laughs> amazing compared to Jesus to a Child. There is something going on. Did you reference Wagner? <laughs> Wagner, George Michael? Yeah. Not like I'm going to invade Poland. But I, um, <laughs> and look, it's amazing. Did you reference Wagner just so you could make that particular joke about Poland? <laughs> I referenced Wagner so I can make a, make a joke about Jesus to a child um, But yeah, so there's a lot more going on than that song uh, There's some fun into it But it's kind, in all the ways it's kind of half-assed In all the way that we're sort of going Ah, oh, it kind of doesn't really have a hook It doesn't really say anything too risque It doesn't really, he's not really singing the fuck out of it A year later he would release Outside and he would do all those things. Right. And I don't know if you're familiar with no, that I'm song. Not it's a song about being caught in the toilets and having sex outside. Okay. All <laughs> oh, right. Yeah. And I, it is the most amazing piece of, like, so the film clip is a helicopter going through the streets of some, te- of some city and just seeing all these people having sex in the Google Maps way. <laughs> and then he is in a toilet that turns into a disco dressed as a cop, <laughs> arresting people in toilets. Uh, I remember yeah. that now. And yeah. it is th- what That's this serious. song was trying to be. Yeah. Um, He's going for it. Um, like, it, that is the best song about glory holes ever. Yeah. I wonder how much that his public depancing liberated him mm. in, in a way that... Um, that a lot of the, the record label stuff that he thought was liberating him didn't. Yeah. It, it actually made him fussier about things. Um, whereas yeah. after that happened, he had nothing nothing left to lose. He could actually joke yeah. about himself in a way he couldn't before when he was in the closet. So That is the story of this album, and, and everyone said it. It's too, like, whatever you feel about the song, it is about 50% too long. This could have been a two-and-a-half-minute song. And I, th- I remember thinking that when I was listening to it this week as well, like, what was with him? Like, between Jesus to a Child and this, what, like, what was the thing? He knows about making three- and four-minute pop songs. What was stopping him at this point? I Why know. was he making seven-minute and five-minute songs? I think Stevie Wonder did it. Was it? Stevie Wonder did it. Mm. You know, I think that was his biggest influence. With that particular point about why the songs are so long, I, I think there was, we were talking with Jesus to a child, um, that he, he didn't have a producer who was willing to, like, tell him no or to yeah. sort of push. And you can hear that on this song as well, that, like, you know, there's, there are, I can hear good ideas in this song that, like, with a good producer could have been pushed into a much catchier, much sort of more, like, well-styled song. And it's just not quite there because, mm. like, there's obviously not that person whoever produced this, like, wasn't the right person to kind of push George to just turn this into a three-minute pop song with a big hook. The person who produced it is George Michael. Yeah. He's I the think, only producer. I, I think that's the thing. <laughs> yeah, after, exactly. Uh, after the whole thing with the label and just liberating himself from being a, a teen 
star. Um, when he, by the time he gets older, it just becomes so indulgent mm. that you know he never really had, had a phase <clears throat> where he could just sit in the studio and tinker with stuff to his heart's content mm. before. And this is him going through that phase of growth before he gets to the period after this where you know, he's been publicly humiliated. He's got nothing left to lose, so he can just go for it in a way. That he I mean, in fairness. In fairness, um, the last album, like Freedom 90, is a long song as well. That's five, six minutes as well. It's just that mm. it doesn't quite sound so long and boring because there's big hooks. You know, the, there's, there's the other side of the argument for me as well, which I think we talked about this with Alanis Morissette last week, which is why should this guy write two-minute songs? Why, Like, whether he gets number one or not, probably he doesn't care. He, and he, he obviously didn't care for another two albums after this. He could just do what he wants, and the fact that he's running six-minute songs that is what he wants to do, the fact he gets to number one is probably irrelevant to him. You know, he just goes, I want to make the music I want to make. Yeah, I don't know that... um, I don't know that getting to number one was irrelevant to him, but I'm pretty sure, like, it wasn't the only thing that was relevant to him. Like, I'm pretty sure he he would have wanted to get to number one because he probably would have wanted the attention and wanted the kind of, you know, no, that kind he, of I've he, done the right thing kind of thing you get when you get to number one, I guess. Sure, but, like, this is this is well in the era where he's not doing interviews, he's not doing anything anymore. He just put the album out. Hmm. So, no, he probably would have wanted to release and maybe chart in some way and be part of the conversation. But the fact, you know, I guess it's not really a George Michael conversation. It's the, it's the conversation we had about Lars Morissette or Carol King or just, you know, these artists who have done enough and earn enough money that they can just do whatever the hell they want. Dylan, you know, I mean... Well, given, given we, all four of us, tend to listen to artists who just do what they want. Yeah, so it's weird For the do. most part. Mm. Yeah. And they don't chart because they're just doing what they want. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, yeah, it, it's... it's There's a degree of hypocrisy in criticising George Michael for that, but... Yeah, I guess... <laughs> But yeah, this song but is I mean, misunderstood like, by Wilco. No, <laughs> yeah, yeah. this song isn't. It, this song is not misunderstood at all in any. <laughs> Sense. I kind of actually feel that this song is slightly misunderstood because we were talking about it being like a song about, you know, like, you know, about having fun and glory holes, but it's actually not really. Like, if you look at the lyrics, like, there's the thing about how he misses his baby. And I suspect it's got the same kind of um, background <laughs> as Jesus to a child where he's, um, you know, where his lover has died and he's going out to try and have fun to get over the pain. Like, I think that's the kind of thing in this song. And so ah, he's, grief sex. Yeah, no, yeah. I, I, I agree with Tim Byron. That's that's a nice little sort of later yeah, sort of a different shade to the song, yeah. but it's yeah. it comes too late. But me. I think I think that thing with the song, like in terms of how it sounds, um, he was trying to get that particular feeling, and so he wanted the song to sound kind of empty. He wanted the song to kind of, to sound slick, but with nothing you know, with no sort of real sort of soul in it. I mm. suspect, and and he, he did it. And um, so I, I think, like, from that point of view, like, he got the song to sound how he wanted it to sound. It's just not um, not what we wanted to hear in the song. And it's interesting, that kind of thing between, like, artists who do what they want and artists who, um, you know, who, who, who try and pander to the masses and, and that kind of thing. Um, I, I don't know. I think, like, a lot of the artists who do what they want often still have... Um, you know, real sort of goals and things that they're trying to do and things that they're trying to say. And um, and George has that goal. It's just not a goal that we wanted to hear in this particular song. Like, yeah. You know, I'm fair. quite happy to hear long songs that um, go on forever. Um, I'm quite, you know, a fan of some of those. And this just isn't one of them because 
it's it's a song that doesn't do anything over that time. It just yeah. kind of. But I think also the length and the feel of it. He was trying to capture that feeling of being in a club. And, well, that's the other thing. And part, yeah, and part of being in a club yeah. with dance music is yeah, things go on for a long time and it, it's repetitive, but. You know that's not a criticism because you can lose yourself in it that much. Yeah. Um, whereas if you're listening on the radio, suddenly it's it's a different context, and you're listening to this song on the radio. You're, you're waiting for the hook because you're not dancing to it and not wanting it to stop. <laughs> yeah. In in the way you would in a club. So yeah, it's it's um, it's kind of as Tim Byron says, that's the feel he wanted to it. This is about going to clubs and meeting people, and yeah, he was trying to capture that. Well, speaking of uh, pandering to audiences, this next song was number one for one week in June uh, of 1996. This is Metallica with Until It Sleeps. <laughs> Where do I take this pain of mine? Stays right by my side So tear me open Pull me out The things inside That scream and shout And the pain still hates me So hold me Until it's Yeah, anyway, I'll, I'll start. It'll be interesting to see how this goes. I actually quite like this song. <laughs> I actually think this is pretty good. Or I th- or at least I thought it was pretty good. I, I remember it very, very well. Mm-hmm. I remember it really well, um, largely because of one dude who Tim... Coyle and I both went to school with, who you were probably going to bring up. <laughs> His name was Alan Fox. Hello, Foxy, if you're listening. Um, who was the biggest Metallica fan at our school, and and he was a mate, and he played drums in the music room at lunchtime and stuff. And um, and this song, I just I don't know what it was about it, but I think I liked the fact that it was a rock song rather than a metal song that Metallica had, had yeah, done, yeah, yeah. you know. Um, and that's basically what they did with Load. It was a rock album rather than a inverted commas metal album. And they've been going towards the inverted Thomas metal for, for some time. But I actually quite like it. I think it's a good chorus. I think it's a good hook. Um, it's um, certainly not the, the best song in the world, and, and I would never seek out to listen to it, really. But um, when I listened to it this week, I was like, oh, yeah, this is all right. And I, and I was fairly happy to listen to it. Hmm. Tim Byron, what about you? I actually pretty much agree with Casey. Um, oh, really? Yeah, I'm... As far as Metallica goes, I'm just not a metal guy, and so I don't really care enough about, you know, One and Call of Cthulhu and Fade to Black and all these kind of, like, classic 80s Metallica songs that were long and, um, you know, intricate and metal stuff as compared to this, which is basically, like Casey said, a rock song. This is, like, hard rock. This is um, the same kind of stuff that, you know, it's on that kind of, like, almost side of... um, that side of almost sort of Soundgarden or Alice in Chains or that kind yeah. of almost grunge but kind of still a bit metal, um, Faith No More's um, King for a Day is sort of in this kind of ballpark as well. 
And um, I liked that kind of stuff at the time. Um, and I kind of liked this at the time. I don't think I ever bought the single or, or I, don't, I never bought Load on, on CD. But um, yeah, I remember hearing this at the song and thinking, oh yeah, this is all right. Um, and, but you know, the, when I ended up buying a Metallica record, um, probably a year later, um, it was the Black Album, of course, because that's the Metallica album you're going to buy if you're going to buy a Metallica album. Oh, right, so, yeah, yeah. yeah, I bought that one and I liked and enjoyed that one. And I don't think I ever sort of really felt like I was missing out on not having load the album. Um, and I was happy enough listening to that one. Tim Yeah, I'm pretty pretty indifferent to this song and was pretty indifferent to it, um, specifically to this. Uh, I know a lot of, well, not a lot, but a few people who listen to this podcast are big Metallica fans, so oh, really? I'll choose my words carefully. <laughs> <laughs> um, for me, this is kind of the period of Metallica's career where their own self-importance started to swallow them whole. <laughs> and... You get that when you watch the film the clip, clip yeah. to, to this. It's mm. just so ridiculous. Um, and look, put into the context of, of their career, this doesn't hold a candle to one or even into Sandman uh, as far as um, uh, the songs of Metallica that I would find uh, catches. So, yeah, I, I just found, look, it's another Metallica song, uh, from that period, for mine, they just all sound really alike. I mean, it's a notch above Creed and Nickelback, but only a notch. <laughs> Danny? I don't remove this song at all. Is he serious? Yeah. Really? I felt like it was so far out of my wheelhouse. Oh, wow. And, uh, yeah, I really didn't. And I listened to it about 20 times this week. Wow. Trying to find something. And, yeah, it just really didn't do it for me. Uh, not really my kind of rock music. I didn't find the hooks so much. The film clip was pretty hilarious. Uh, you know, it's the opposite of the... I, I just love pop hooks, and there's not really pop hooks in this. And um, so, yeah, so I don't remember this song. I think I don't think... I had sort of totally zoned out Metallica at this point. And it's interesting. It got to, got to number one for one week. I'm assuming it's the week that Load came out, or right. the single came out, whatever. But I don't yeah. even remember seeing this on Rage that much. I think no, I, I, think I, I remember the the name of the song, so I think I'll come across it, but I've not really done And it's, it's interesting because I looked it up on Google and even the autocorrect didn't bring this song up first. <laughs> it brought, like, you type in Metallica, UN, and it's Unforgiven and then Unforgiven 2 yeah. and everything else. <laughs> like, there's other songs that come up before this song. And so it's like, so I'm assuming it hasn't been a song that's that's th- loomed large yeah, in their history either. I think that's the thing no. where it sits in the Metallica canon is just kind of, Towards the yeah. back of the shelf. Yeah. Yeah. And it, and I do remember it. That's what my little joke about it being pandering is. Uh, yeah, it, I do remember people at school who were Metallica fans not liking it so much, right? Um, and just thinking that it was a bit of a soft song for them. So, and I guess it's confirmed here where we're probably not metalheads here. Yeah. We kind of <laughs> like, like, like it. Yeah. Mm. yeah so mm. that's the clear question: is like, how big were Metallica in your school? Oh, um, for everyone. Huge, yeah. because they were massive, massive in my yeah, school. Massive. Oh, there, there was a there was a, a, a section yeah. of schools. Well, to, to, I, to I, whom I they think were. every school in Australia, yeah, sure, in the mid nineties, would have had the, its substantial metallic clique. Because if you liked hard music, 
Metallica were just the band for you. They were called Metallica. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And in the name. And, the, and look, they have so much. But there is so much that appeals to a teenager of that band. They have so much merch and things with that. Because, oh, so much. But, but part of piecing your identity together requires getting a hold of that stuff. And it's it was easy to acquire Metallica okay. merch. Here's the other question. How many people in your school... Wanted to look like a member of Metallica. <laughs> <Awesome>. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> For me, Metallica, like in my school, were just massive. Like it wasn't just like a little clique. Like it felt like, you know, 75% of the guys at school liked Metallica. Like it was really kind of like something you had to do to be vaguely considered cool. Right. I remember at the time. And this may have been because I went to high school in, um, you know, somewhere vaguely near Campbelltown out in the West where like, you know, and we were sort of the smart kids because I went to a selective high school. We were the smart kids of the region who were probably going to tr- trying to get out of where we were and the kind of situations we were in. Uh, we were sort of more aware of that. And so Metallica were kind of there and center for people who were vaguely dissatisfied with the world and wanted to have like a t-shirt that said Metallica, what, what, what is it? Birth. Metallica death was that, was that how it went have you uh, seen that t-shirt with that on no. the back well now that you've said that it kind of rings a bell but there were just so many like yeah. they're one of those they're one yeah. of those bands that just um, I reckon 40% of their income comes from t-shirt sales these yeah. days like it's absolutely ridiculous but that was the thing at the time in Tamworth where band merch was not easy to come by. Not really. Every no. second guy had a Metallica yeah. shirt. Yeah. I mean, I couldn't find an REM shirt no. anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, that was yeah. one of the biggest bands in the world at the time with a very big fan base. I, but, I still can't find a Randy Newman shirt. <laughs> <laughs> I went to a Randy Newman concert and he didn't have, even have T-shirts. <laughs> <laughs> but me with Metallica, like, I don't know about you guys, but I, I think I've always managed to either like a Metallica song or ignore it. I think I, I, you know, I have, I okay. do but not have. How many have did a, you like and how many have you ignored? Oh, like <laughs> I've liked a dozen and ignored hundreds. <laughs> but I don't have, I don't have a, a, a hate gene for Metallica. You know, even, I can't even, hate them. Even after the Stanger? Like, and the, the Stanger is <laughs> the, the stanger. only one that I remember just... And I, again, I didn't even hate it. It was just laughable. Yeah, I, um, think, I think that was the thing with Sudanga. It it was the point where when I was talking about the self-important swallowing them whole, yeah. this is the point it cracked them back out. Yeah. <laughs> well, that was the album they did some kind of monster with, right? Yes, yes. the yes. best rock and roll movie ever made. Better than Spinal Tap. Yeah, see, I, I mm. do have the Metallica, I guess not hate Gene, but I do... There is very little for me that I like about Metallica. I think they're kind of silly. I think Lars is a douche <laughs> oh, Lars in particular. Uh, but the fact that they were around and made, for me, terrible music for decades upon decades, so it gave me that documentary, Some Kind of Monster, it makes it all work. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. Oh, it's the best. And you don't have to like Metallica to watch it. Oh, anymore. God, no. It's probably no. better if you don't like it yeah. to yeah. watch it because... Uh, at by the time it ends, you're just sitting there in open-mouthed horror at what you've just witnessed. <laughs> yeah, and it made me actually like them a little bit more. The fact that they let it come out. Yeah, yeah. regardless. And, like, everything with mm. that bass player and stuff and how amazing the journey is through that film. So if you haven't watched it, listeners, I definitely recommend it. Even if you don't like Metallica, which I do not, some kind of monster. 
It's it's kind of ruined though. Ever ever since I saw that band, any any time I've like uh, saw that film, any time I've joined a band or played with a new band since that, um, I've been really disappointed that they didn't all offer me a million dollars straight up. Like but the question is, like, what Metallica do you like? Like, what are the Metallica songs you like the best? Like, apart from Danny, who, you know, we know the answer to this already. Uh, you know, the songs from Black, you know, um, the Intersendance and Unforgivens and um, Nothing Else Matters and all that. I just I think are, are, are great rock songs. Mm. Yeah, I think a song like Nothing Else uh, Nothing Else Matters, which has a really good tune to it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Beyond the, the guitar sounds and stuff like that, it's a really well put together song. And one... Uh, it's maybe the dirgiest dirge that ever dirged, but it's still a good, it is still a good song. So yeah, I, I kind of I do like that period um, of, of Metallica. All things, all things given. What about so, you, Tim? Your black album. Yeah, I like man. one is probably my favorite Metallica song. I'd say I, I like um, some of the stuff on Master of Puppets. Still, like the when they're sort of at their sort of chuggiest. You know how like metal, yeah, metal yeah. bands have that kind of chuggy thing? That's sort of when they felt at their most sort of chuggiest and the they do the chugging chugga, and then guitar solos. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and um, yeah, so I, I like that kind of stuff. I really like Fuel as well. Fuel is funny as a song. Do you know Fuel? Give from me Fuel, Reload? give me Fire, give me that which I desire. Is that. Ooh! <laughs> According to Wikipedia, they once did a cover of Turn the Page by Bob Seger, so that will be my favourite Metallica. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. One time. So. <laughs> Do it time. <laughs> Where's my packet of M&M's? <laughs> Our fourth song of tonight was number one for seven weeks from the 22nd of June, 1996. And this is the food called Fuji's with Killing Me Softly. Singing my life with his words. Killing me softly with his song.
was Killing Me Softly by Fuji's, not the Fuji's, uh, 22nd of June. It was number one for seven weeks, taking us well into August. I'm going to start with this one because I haven't had a chance to start yet. I feel like I should have liked this song more, but I guess this is the time where R&B started getting a little bit crap for me, mm. you know, mm. and then uh, it started getting, started to be way too produced. And Fuji La, the Fuji single before this, which Triple J would play and remember it and go, yeah, it's got a bit mm. of attitude. And you look at Lauren Hill and you go, oh, yeah, she's talented. But the fact that this was a cover and, you know, we rallied against, not totally rallied against, but we talked about this with Coolio last week. We'll talk more about it when when the, the man known as Puff Daddy comes along into our lives. And it was just like, I guess I knew these songs, I knew Killing Me Softly, I knew the Roberta Flack song already, and it just didn't do much for me that Roberta Flack did. Actually, no, what's the song I am thinking of? Staying Alive. I'm thinking of Staying Alive, which is had everything I like about that song yeah. comes from the Bee Gees. Yeah. And I think to some degree, everything I like about this song, which I did kind of like back in the day, comes from the original. And her voice is good. And yeah. Listening to it this week, the irrelevance of anything that the Fuji's added to the song. Yeah. And the one time, two time, and just, ah, uh, and also the fact that Lauren Hill became a psychopath is <laughs> just, it mars this song. But I do remember thinking the score, this was supposed to be a big album, and it's one of those big albums that I feel like I think I should have liked more, but I think this is when, when commercial R&B really, really lost it. Casey, what about you? Uh, you know, I, I, I fucking hated this then. I really? so much. I absolutely hated it. I don't know if I knew the original song. Um, oh, really? You didn't know it was a cover? I think I knew it was a cover. I didn't really know the original song, but I just fucking hated this. Probably because of all of those R&B kind of affectations laid over the top of it that... Um, that was just something that I hated in music at the time. Um, like what you've said about all those just unnecessary, like what is he just saying one time? What's that? What's, what's that? And like, you know, starting off with a beat and people going, yeah. What? <laughs> what are you saying yeah to? There was nothing before the yeah. What are you agreeing with? I don't understand. <laughs> Why did you start halfway through a conversation? I just, and there was, <laughs> sorry, I'll, I'll come down. And there was another guy at school um, who I won't name because he was a fucking douchebag. And um, Alan Fox, who I named the, uh, as the Metallica fans, actually a really nice guy, but um, who really loved the Fugees and was one of the reasons that I hated this because <laughs> this guy was such a fucking prick and yeah, um, right. that's all it takes really. <laughs> oh absolutely mm. and then so with all of that in mind however long later it is what is it 15 years later or more sitting down listening to it this week i was like okay i, it, I can give myself a chance to to like this song with a clear mind now and it did nothing for me i just don't need this song and the the, the original version is is great it's a great song and I just don't need this. It does. It's nothing. Tim Byron. Yeah, for me, I remember listening to this song for like the first time or the first two or three times and being sort of pretty impressed by it. 
Um, I knew the original because my mum had like a Roberta Flack best of, though her version actually isn't the original. The original is by Laurie Lieberman, apparently, according to Wikipedia. But anyway, um, I, I knew that version and um, heard this. And I remember sort of being very taken with how minimalistic it was, like that it was just basically Lauren Hill singing over like a, 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 a drum machine yeah. for most of the song. And that there's not much else going on. And I remember being really fascinated by the fact that it was so popular and the fact that it still worked, even though it was so stark and minimalistic. And I remember sort of, I remember looking at it and thinking, well, how does this work? Like, what's, what's going on here? And, um, and so I remember doing that for the first sort of couple of weeks it was around. And then after that, kind of getting bored by it because it was so big and omnipresent and everywhere. And, you know, when it comes down to it, it's not that different as a cover. I mean, Lauren Hill sings beautifully in it, like she really does. Um, but then so did Roberta Flack. And, um, yeah, to me, yeah, this was okay. Um, but yeah, I just remember being fascinated by how minimalistic it was and, um, and yeah, listening to it now, I don't think I've really changed my opinion. It's not that great because it is just basically a cover, but I am still fascinated by how minimalistic it was and still how it became a big hit even so. Mm. Yeah, I think... (laughs) I, I, I lean more towards Casey's initial response to it is that um, I, I, d- I really didn't didn't like it. Um, I think this was an occasion where my parents heard the song on the radio and immediately ran and grabbed the Roberta Flack version and said, you must listen to yeah. this. Kind of thing that went on. So, oh, yeah. Um, it's one of those things where you separate the different elements out to it. And I think, as Danny says, all that is good in this song is just comes from the the actual melody and Lauren Hill does sing it beautifully, but she doesn't stray too far from what Roberta Flack was doing on, I, I guess, the canon version mm. um, of the song. And all that's left are the R&B, is the R&B window dressing, basically, and that's all it is, just it window is dressing, is, yeah. because it's effectively just Wyclef and Praz having a conversation. Yes. Just an inane conversation going on. And I'm oh. kind of like, why is this there? <laughs> we I mean, say while we're recording a podcast. I know. I know. I know. I know. I know. I know. I mean, it's, it's, that's what they were doing. They were recording a podcast. <laughs> it's like the Foodies podcast. Well, they, yeah, they, they found that there was a demand for this kind of thing, but there wasn't a vehicle for it yet. So, oh, you know, Clef, somewhere, somewhere Wyclef and Prez are making a podcast <laughs> and they're just yammering on and it's awesome. But in a it's just you know they're having a stoner conversation (laughs) kind of mumbling yeah and one time and two time and it just rambles on for five or six minutes and you're just like this was so unnecessary Mm, it just doesn't need to be and the thing is when Lauren Hill goes solo it all starts to make a lot of sense it's that she was the talent there. Uh, I mean, she was the hook. She was, yeah, well, that's the, and that's the, yeah. and that's the thing. Her 
that first solo album, the Miseducation of Lauren Hill, is a fantastic album and it has hooks. And so what was oh, it? It is still of. her only solo album. Only she solo never album. released it. Right. Apart she, from the Unplugged. That's right. right. So it was the and this is just because I had in my I'm mind. I had in my mind that the Miseducation of Lauren Hill tanked, but I'm wrong about no, that. No, it was the it was the Unplugged no. that, that that completely friggin' tanked. Yeah, but that was like an MTV Unplugged record. It wasn't yeah. really an album. Mm. Like, wasn't it was, uh, and it was from like 2003 or yeah. something like right. that. She was well into her very well documented personal difficulties at that <laughs> stage. But when the miseducation <laughs> yeah. of Lauren Hill came out, that was not the case. She was a superstar, and mm. you could see why she was. She could sing the fuck out of anything that was given to her, and the singles off the, that album are fantastic. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I, yeah, they like, are. do what that thing is yeah, great, that incredible is great. song. But the other thing that annoys me about Fuji and then later Lauren Hill, and I think, look, I mean, let's face it, I'm probably the guy most likely to like it, right, out of, out of the four of us. But fucking it pissed me off that the biggest song on the score was a cover, and then it pisses me off that the biggest song on the Miseducation of Lauren Hill end up being a cover as well, which is her version of Can't Take My Eyes Off You. Oh, really? And it was just like... Is that a cover? I don't think that's a cover. I think that's just a... It's um, the Frankie Valley song. Um, like it's it's not a cover so much. It's like it's it's a taking bits and pieces of the Frankie Valley no, song. No, it, it, it yeah, it, ta- it, ta- it takes them. It, is it like a stay, is it staying alive by in trance? No, yeah, it's 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 someone else having a podcast over a cover version of <laughs> Cutting My Eyes Off You, and it's like <laughs> we'll be doing next week. <laughs> so it's just like well, it's, it's kind of the thing with this song. It's as I say, it's window dressing. They didn't go into this song and think about. And think about what's going on. How can we deconstruct this? Pull it apart and make it something relevant and vital. But the actual, but the actual thing with this is that they did go into it wanting to do that, and were told no by the. um, So, so I remember seeing an interview with them, probably in Juice magazine or something like that, in like at the time where they were talking about how they wanted to really change the song, and they'd done a version of it, and um, the original writer or whoever held the rights to the publishing said no. And so they eventually just did the version that. So they just hear. they just went into a studio, then Praz and Wyclef got stoned and just said, <laughs> talked to one another. Yeah, for killing me softly. Yeah, I remember that story. But um, yeah, it's um, I mean, it's funny for me because I don't hate this song anywhere near as much as Danny, and I'm. I don't hate it. I just think it's a bit. Yeah, but you've just been ranting about it for five minutes. <laughs> no, I hate the fact that their biggest. That they have no the, the band the Fugees and Lauren Hill are known for two covers. I guess it just feels like. But is that necessarily their fault? I mean, the label would have probably pushed them to release a, a cover of "Killing Me Softly" as a single, and then yeah, people yeah. but people buy it. I, yeah, I know. That's, that's but like, people, people, people like people like covers. Buy. Yeah, that's true. But it's just like it annoys me that it, it just like it's not really something that annoys me about them. It annoys me that their songs. They, they just weren't the band that was writing songs that could stand, stand up to the covers that they were doing. Yeah. Well, I, I think, think, I think the, the thing with this is... Indicative of, of the talent of the band. What, what Tim Byron said, they weren't allowed to do what they, they wanted to, to do with it. And mm. the end result is, mm. look, it's Malibu Stacey with a new hat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Do you guys remember, um, did you know who Lauren Hill was before um, Killing Me Softly and no, stuff? Like, had that. you seen her in, because um, I remember like she seeing her. She was in Sister and, Act 2. Yeah, and knowing that she was in Sister Act 2, uh, Back in the Habit. Um, <laughs> that, what a movie that I know that well. It was a movie that I knew because it was on TV and because I was still kind of a kid mm, um, yeah. when that, in 93 or so. So I remember watching that and seeing that. And I remember, oh. 
And, and one of the things I remember that maybe is part of why the Fujis were a bit successful was I was I remember being surprised that this girl who was like a, a movie star kind of person um, was it doing this hip hop stuff, like that she wasn't like and I, that's the thing I sort of remember from the time mm. that she could have done that kind of Mariah Carey, Whitney Houston kind of thing, but instead she went for the yeah. the weirder kind of side of stuff, like mm. not so much on this song, but on the rest of the score, like is you know things like Fujila and Ready or Not are much weirder than this is. Mm. And I remember being impressed by that and sort of giving them a, um, you, you know, like a free pass for killing me softly because I knew that they were capable of better. Yeah, and I, I, I also think there's that thing of um, that the miseducation of Lauren Hill is a real culmination of her going from those first impressions that she could have been a great gospel and soul singer mm-hmm. who mm-hmm. then took a total left turn mm-hmm. through, through the foodies and then came out with this very fully realised solo album look my wife is a huge lauren hill fan she loves that album to death and plays it all the time so i hear it all the time and my appreciation of it grows i love that album too the miseducation of lauren hill i think it's just it's a great sort of pop solo rb and um yeah the rest of the the fujis have also had their hits as well um praz praz michael had like ghetto superstar yeah, which is an, another one of those songs that takes yeah, a bit of something else. Islands, Islands, Islands in the Stream. Islands in the Stream. Yeah, Islands in the Stream, that's right. And um, Wyclef Jean has, um, he had a... Oh, Wyclef's solo work wasn't too bad, actually, for him. Yeah. Everyone knows Wyclef. He's Wyclef Jean. Yes. Yeah. He's, he's the crazy man who wants to... He's just crazy man. What is he? And he's um he was going life. to run for president of um, yeah. Haiti <laughs> yeah. a couple of years ago and um, hadn't lived in Haiti for long enough to do it. Apparently, he had to live in Haiti for five years and he'd been living in the totally US. So he could, but <laughs> yeah, he could be president of a country. It's it's yeah. amazing to think like you know this guy who was just going two time on this song that we liked in <laughs> 1996. You know, 15 later was gonna 15 years later was gonna be the president. You know, of a country. I mean, you, you sort of like think about like this. The stuff from now, like you know, where's Lord Lord A or Lord going to be in fifteen years? Like, is she going to be president of New, New Zealand, Zealand? <laughs> <laughs> or Haiti? Um. <laughs> okay, let's move on. Let's move on to our our final song of tonight. Was number one for just three weeks from the tenth of August, nineteen ninety six. I know we're all excited by this one. Oh. This is Celine Dion with "Because You Loved Me" slash "The Power of the Dream."
Celine Dion with Because You Loved Me. That's the song we chose to play, although it was a double B, double A side. Uh, according no, to I'll, I'll go with double B side. <laughs> 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 double, double. Yeah. <laughs> uh, with Because You Loved Me and The Power of a Dream. So, geez, who wants to start with this one? Let's just shoot it over to Dean Byron. Because You Loved Me. What do you think? Written by Diane Warren, oh, no. produced by David Foster. What yes, else David Foster, baby. <laughs> He's back. Yeah. Um, yeah. What a winning combination. Mm, it's such a Diane Warren song. It's just, um, for those who don't know, Dan- Diane Warren is like the, the queen of the power ballad. Like She's written every shitty 80s kind of power ballad you can think of. In 1990 alone, um, she had... Four songs that she wrote that were in the um, that got into the top ten in Austra- in Australia, including "When I See You Smile" by Bad English, "Blame It on the Rain" Great by song. Millie Vanilli, Great "How song. Can We Be Lovers" by Michael Bolton, and "I'll Be Your Shelter" by Taylor Dane. And wow. um, yeah, she's just that person. We're going to come back to Diane Warren, I think, in a two or three podcast time with a song by a band that should know better. <laughs> uh, but we'll get to that. Hold on, there's, there's bands that don't know better. <laughs> yeah, I didn't. Like this at the time, of course. And I remember going into this this week um, thinking, all right, I'm going to steal myself for it. I'm, this is going to be not good. Um, this is going to be bad. And so I went in listening to Because You Love Me. I, I have to say, I didn't listen to Power of the Dream because I don't think I could put myself through that. <laughs> but I, w- I went and listened to Because You Love Me and I went in sort of stealing myself. And I remember like, and I was listening to it thinking, this isn't as bad as I was expecting it to be. Um, she's and, and, and listening to it, she kind of... Um, you know, underplays her usual Celine Dion thing up until about a minute and a half from the end when it just goes like full bore Celine. Key you know, change. Key change, <clears throat> going big and, and bad. And, um, but, you know, having to, having to listen to like the likes of Please Forgive Me and like <laughs> Have You Ever Really Loved a Woman, I was expecting this to be as bad as those, as worse at, or, or worse. And it was just kind of like, it was bad, but it wasn't quite that bad. And so I remember listening to it thinking, I thought this would be worse. I mean, I didn't like it, but I thought it would be worse. Tim Coyle. Yeah, it's a bit of a rotter, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) It's like the first time we encountered Celine Dion and I made the serial killer analogy that that was like the first kill and it was clumsy. She's gotten pretty good at it now. She's kind of in full-on Dharma mode at at this stage. So, yeah, these are kind of the the bodies in the freezer in Wisconsin uh, kind of deal. Um, It's just just a shocker. It's so treacly, sentimental, um, spineless, so very, very spineless. And we'll, we'll be covering other songs soon, which show a little bit more a little bit more backbone from written from a female perspective but this this idea i'm everything i am because of some dude yeah it's like you know get out of the 1950s diane and celine and yeah i i I couldn't i could barely do it this week listen to it once we'll never listen to it again casey atkins yeah listen to it once and that that was just the overriding theme like you are everything you are. Everything. Oh, really? It's just, it's, it's again that. Him? That, that, yeah, him? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but those grand statements in these kind of songs, like, 
I would do anything for love, but I would do that. And and what was the to Brian Adams one that like um everything I do, I do everything I do, I do it for you. Well, Brian Adams I, co-wrote a song with Diane Warren. Oh, of course. Maybe that's where he got it from. Oh, of course he did. So yeah, of course. What do I have to say? Like, just copy and paste what I said about the last Celine Dion song. Throw it in here. Like, it's just um, one of those. It's just another one of these bloody songs with another voice that I just hated. What I just can't believe, quickly looking at it now, is um, this song was the single from uh, Celine Dion's 21st studio album. (laughs) 21st Mm. studio album. 21 people. Yes. And this was not the last. Yeah, you would have thought the police would have gotten involved before this. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you meant like Sting and stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Not as insane as it sounds. (laughs) Yeah, this is a shit song, obviously. Uh, What can I say? David Foster, one of my most hated people, did all music. So we talked a little bit about David Foster with the last one. It was the last Celine song. Last Celine song. Yeah. He's just a douche. Um, We do get to talk about Celine again, so it's going to be weird. So I'm going to save Pine Vile and and for for Diane Warren. (laughs) Fucking hell, Diane Warren. Um, So there was a time where I used to work for record companies and the story of record companies in the last 10, 15 years is people being made redundant. And there was hmm. the head of a big publishing company who was working in the same office as us, got made redundant and left his, like, thousands and thousands of CDs and box sets in his office untouched. So me and a friend went up and raided it. We got these amazing things. I still have the best Burt Bacharach box set you'll ever see because it's a publishing one that they sent to film companies that you could never license all the songs because it's got, you know, Baby It's You by the Beatles on it and stuff like that. Mm. So to send to film companies to get them to use both Baccarat songs. And there was this ornate, beautiful Diane Warren box set that just the packaging was so beautiful. And there were like three of them. And I couldn't even bring myself to steal it. (laughs) (laughs) It was just like, I was going, well, maybe there might be one song or something. You know, it's cool to have. It looks good. And I couldn't even bring myself to steal it. And then you slap that little devil on your shoulder. Isn't that an interesting story? And I'm just looking it up now. And people have told me about this before. I've never really read it. But the story about Diane Warren, the person, is that she's just like quite lonely. And like, you know, Diane Warren has never married, does not think of herself as a person of commitment. I um, think that's part of in her in, in her interview. In interview, she stated that uh, a belief that her lack of a romantic life makes her more peculiar as a songwriter. No, so I she is actually of... she is actually the woman in these songs, or yeah. that's the aspiration. Yeah, it, yeah. It's, it's, it's part of her marketing. It's yeah. John Lennon not talking about being married. It's it's the thing that she knows to get across in Billboard magazine and shit to make people buy into her. F- her brand as a songwriter, I think it's all and, crap. Yeah, really. I think there's that thing with this song and so much of Diane Warren's work, that very old-fashioned and very dubious idea of femininity that she just hammers at time and time mm. again. And this song has it all over it. It's just dripping mm. with it. Yeah. And femininity to the point of... Well, like, it's, it's, an a- so it's, it's an act. It's a performance. And it's this very... 50s housewife performance mm. and yeah that's kind and the of- thing with the fi- the thing with the 50s housewife performance is that um Celine Dion's fans mm. were born in the 50s yeah of course um you know her, her, yeah. like you know there's been yeah. research on her kind of um her demographic and their demographic is like you know 
widows who are about 40-ish who are probably ethnic of some description, um, you know, not of a majority ethnicity, they're of a minority ethnicity one way or the other. Because everyone's and, um, got an ethnicity. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> everyone's ethnic or something. <laughs> Except Canadians. <laughs> <laughs> Add that priest to, to a closed ninety percent cultural studies. <laughs> <laughs> but she's got um that kind of fans, and and they are kind of you know probably fairly religious. They're probably reasonably old, and so they probably dig this kind of um, idea of femininity mm. that Celine Dion certainly pushes, and the Diamore pushes. And so yeah, I listened to um, because you love me, and I could hear the the genius of it in terms of like just nailing what these people want to hear. Yeah, sure. Like it's cool. it's really really not for me, but mm. like I can listen to it and go, they're like you know ticking all these boxes so that like housewives who are about forty who are lonely, um, you know, are just going to sit this and go, mm. you know, hear this song and just going to go, this is for me, this is amazing. I'm going to go and see Celine in Las Vegas. You yeah, know, yeah. And, um, and, and the thing is, taking that objective standpoint, that yeah, it's it's. It's very well done to do that. And I also wrote on the blog, look, that's an audience that have their their value system represented absolutely nowhere mm. in popular culture. So yeah. you know, it's no surprise that they cling on to it when it's put out there for them. Um, and, yeah, that's that's kind of where this song gets gets its power from and it's so unabashed. In, in how it does that. It's, hmm. um, yeah, it clings on to that outdated ideal of femininity, that very conservative ideal of femininity and just kind of what a relationship between a man and a woman should be. It just goes to broke with hmm. that. And yeah, kind of in the, in the, in the same way that, um, like, take that, that it was utterly craven, this song is even more so. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, the only thing I want to say about this is that A, it sounds like a Channel 9 fucking promo. Yeah. Right? I'm sure it's been used. Probably been used. Yeah. yeah. And B, this, is, this album, Falling Into You, was her highest selling. And there were fucking eight singles from this. Oh, Jesus. This, like, I mean, we're talking about one double A side, B side, double shit side, of like, <laughs> of whatever. But double backside. This is... <laughs> double backside. That's better. <laughs> this is... When she was big, this is the height of her powers. So we do remember, like, her version of All Coming Back to Me Now. Yes. Falling Into You, All By Myself. All these songs were from this album in the Madness era. So she was the enemy. Height of her power. Like, she's like Ceausescu or something. <laughs> <laughs> but look, I mean... I, we, she's like Melisandre from Game of Thrones. Yeah. She's just going in and, like, birthing shadow babies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you don't know what that reference is, Casey. You know, you're So that pretty much brings us to the end of 90% hits for another week. As usual, we will go around the room and get everyone to pick a song somehow that they loved <laughs> from the selection this week. We have OMC with How Bizarre. We have George Michael with Fast Love. Until It Sleeps, Metallica. Fuji's Killing Me Softly and Celine Dion's Because You Love Me Slash The Power Of A Drink. Um, God, what do we choose? Wow. Casey Atkins. Um, shit. <laughs> um, I, I guess it's Metallica. <laughs> <laughs> this one's for you, Foxy. Yeah. <laughs> default, default. Uh, Tim Byron. 
for me, it's going to be until it's least by Metallica. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I like all these stuff much more than you guys. And I think I was just like 14 at the time and you were 15, 16. And so I was just kind of that little bit more naive and less worried about like whether stuff was cool. But yeah, until it's least for Metallica is probably the one that I like the best. Yeah. Tim. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it, 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 for me, it's a toss up between until it sleeps or fast love. Uh, I'm going to throw George Michael bone here. Yeah, fast love. Yeah, and I'm going fast love. It's definitely oh. the only song. I mean, unless I get the truth, Roberta Flax killing me song. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 Oh, well, it's a dead heat between the um, yeah between George Michael and Metallica. Yeah, they must hate each other so much. Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay, well that wraps it up for us. We'll be back next week. Lars with... and George Michael, good buddies. Yeah, <laughs> you can yeah, see that, can't you? In that toilet. Um, and okay, that brings us to, an- to the end of another ninety percent. Here's Casey Atkins. Do you want to tell people where they can find us on the internet? Yes, you can find us. Um, Pretty much everywhere. We're on the front page of Google. We're all over Reddit. We're <laughs> hang on a minute. No, that's that's right. on Sunset Boulevard. Yeah. <laughs> um, <clears throat> you can find us on Facebook. You can find us on Twitter. You can um, find us on Tumblr, or you can email us at Gmail. So we're ninety percent hits, nine zero percent in words. Hits also in words in all of those places. Tim Byron, tell us more about the blog. We post lots on the Tumblr, so we'll post the videos of the songs we're discussing. We'll post some of the other songs that they did. So we'll post, uh, Danny can post his Outside, was it, by George Michael? Uh, yeah. And so we can see what that, that one is with it's all its people in toilets getting caught having sex. And um, we'll post, like, things like that. And we'll post, like, the reviews of the number twos of the time, um, you know, some of which possibly could be better than the number twos that we've just been listening to. <laughs> Casey just always laugh at number twos. Sorry, I know. Just... That was an easy one oh, and I just went for it. it. That's why you won't oh, yeah. it any other way. That we're at in this podcast. So, uh, yeah, and please do... It's the level we're at. Yeah. <laughs> do, do write to us. Uh, we read all the comments on the blog and iTunes and stuff. And leaving us a rating on the iTunes actually helps us uh, come up and search. So, And just a reminder that all the episodes are available now on iTunes as well. We had a problem before. But look, until next week, look, if you do hear what's... If you do know, have any information about what's happened to Mary, uh, please let us know. Otherwise, we'll talk to you next week. Today is going to be the day that they're going to throw it back to you. By now you should have somehow realized what you gotta do Swarming my Gotta get up, get down. Just with you guys, there's been birds. Bird. Should we just close the window? No, just let it. Just let it just go. Let it. It's, it's just birds. It's not pet sound. How bizarre! Yeah. How, bu- how bizarre! You like what I did there? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> how bizarre!